I think uh, before we proceed, a little bit we can just compare what really Vedanta is because we have been speaking about it or hearing about it since morning. And how does it enter into Shirobindo's yoga? And what are the processes in Vedanta as and in Shirobindo's yoga? What are the commonalities? What are the differences? <coughs> in fact, the Canto secret knowledge refers to Vedantic knowledge because it's the knowledge which is secret, which cannot be achieved by any sensory or mental process. This is the uh, basic fundamental thing about it that you cannot arrive at it by the senses you cannot arrive it, at it by processes of analysis there has to be another way so that other way is basically the emergence of intuition which is latent in everybody and the more it comes to the surface the more it leads us this is the guide not, not the mental processes and a whole lot of whole lot of effort is simply to quieten the mind so that intuition can emerge. So this is one part of it. But this emergence of intuition in Shurabindo's Yoga is deeply facilitated by faith, aspiration, surrender. These are the key processes through which this intuition emerges. Faith itself is a knowledge which is concealed in a different experience within us. Faith itself is an experience. For instance, faith in spiritual things. And to these things, to spiritual things, to Shurabindo's yoga, to the path, process, we give a certain form and structure by the mind because it's a natural way that the mind picks up a truth and gives its own form and structure. I'm right now only relating to what we have heard so that we can connect with it. So it is but natural that we have built a structure within us with which we connect. It becomes an image of reality. It is not the reality, but it's an image of reality. And through that we try to approach that which is infinite. Now, what do we do with this image? One way is that we deconstruct that image. The problem with deconstructing that image is that we may fall into the um, one into an image of nothingness. This also happens because the mind creates, as Shobinda speaks of it, that the mind may give you a sense of the self. And it's very beautifully described in Savitri in one of the uh, cantos, in the self of mind, where you simply deconstruct all the images, all the conceptions, all the systems, paths, theories. And then the mind enters into a state where it creates a vacant knot. This is an experience and it's liberating from all the mental anxieties and one can live in that for a long time. But as we see in Savitri, this experience is a negative side of the reality. It's that it is nothing. It is not this. It is not that. It is indefinable. It cannot be bound to any system. It cannot be bound to any concept. But then Shurabindu says there is a positive side of the same reality. It is not just, it is not this, not that. It is also, it is this and that. In the Upanishadis, when they ask what is reality, says it is this and that. So it has become everything. 
So therefore, Sherbinder says that instead of deconstructing it, start with an idea which is most all-encompassing of the divine reality. So if we have the iPad so that, you know, yeah. we are very clear that we are talking of Mother Shirobindo and Collected Works of the Mother, Volume 8. So, in fact, it's um, the mother comments on one of Shirobindo's uh, writings in the synthesis passages where he says, if we have to attempt the integral yoga at all, we must start with an integral conception of the divine. So what is this integral conception? So one way is that there is no conception. And the other is that there is a... How do I move this the page? Okay, this way, fine. So it's the very first one, so there is no problem no. at all. So instead of... I mean, all our conceptions, divine is this, divine is that, mother says so, mother means this, these are all conceptions. And they are like scaffoldings given to each of us in our journey. The problem is if we get trapped in one particular formation or formulation of the divine and believe that is the ultimate, that is the only one and it should universally apply, then we make a cult of it. So we have to avoid it. But in the very beginning, if we have an integral conception of the divine, then it makes the journey very wonderful because then the mental structures will evolve. Now, you know, this is the second problem, that when we deconstruct, then we don't let this mind get transformed. Even if we get at the one reality, this mind as an instrument remains yeah, remains the same. So that's why, um, because the whole aim is transformation, Shurabindo, particularly in his commentaries on the East Upanishad, he says, instead of doing that, you continue to let the mind grow wider and supple, push the limits of your understanding till eventually it goes into an infinity. And this experience is very beautifully described in the mother's prayer soon after when she met Shirobindo and she describes it in the agenda also, that with all her experiences, she had constructed a whole beautiful synthesis. And this is not by the mind, this is with all the experiences that she had. So when she sits by the, at the feet of Shirobindo, all these constructions gradually vanish. Now you see, this is a very beautiful thing. There are many hints and suggestions in it. And then she says, then after a while, something new began to take its place, which was far more supple, wide and plastic. So it's not that structures vanish, but they become more and more like instruments of the divine consciousness to express the divine consciousness. So if that be the goal, we cannot prematurely, totally, you know, uh, demolish all conceptions. We have to start with something and make them wider and wider. That is how the journey goes. So it was in prayers and meditation. It's, right? it's in prayers and meditation as well as in agenda. So in prayers and meditation on April 1st, she says that, you know, I have become like a newborn child who has no karma, no concepts, nothing. But what that experience is, describes later. Now, mind you, the beauty of that experience is she also gives a hint how to have it. See, the mother is a yogini of yoginis. And she has experienced every possible thing upon earth. But isn't it amazing that the mother has says that I have I had not experienced or I had not known how to silence the mind. The mind still is weaving. It's very amazing. Now this is because, uh, you know, when we think about mental silence, we think that the surface noises will straight away cease. 
but actually it is to enter into a zone which is deep within while the surface movements are going on this also yogi's experience which is a very strange thing but it is not the ultimate uh, truth you have to quieten that so she gets it simply by the act of sitting at the feet of shirobindo so when i read this i said this is a wonderful way i mean <laughs> instead of <laughs> trying to fight one part of the mind with another part there is another way that by simply sitting at the feet of shirobindo this whole process can was be activated to richard at the same time yes he This was talking yes he was talking to shirobindo and they were both engaged in discussion and he says i i knew all this he says that i knew all that they are discussing but i was not interested in it so she simply sits and she says all these structures vanished but then the beauty is that that vanishing is not the completion the new things which come up and that she has described very beautifully in uh, later on even in savitri it is described very beautifully that you have uh, reached the eternal no but what about the eternal yes that gives sanction to the paradox of life so here i'll just read this passage which relates to how these concepts uh, which are useful at one stage can come in the way and what is the and, and what are their problems what are their limitations and how we can really go further so to start with shurbindo reveals to us in synthesis of yoga if we are to attempt an integral yoga it will be as well to start with an idea of the divine that is itself integral so shivindu is not telling us that you have you start with a blank but shivindu is telling us start with an idea of the divine and that idea as wide an idea it is the better it is there should be an aspiration in the heart wide enough for a realization without any narrow limits not only should we avoid a sectarian religious outlook now you see this is where the catch comes not only should we avoid a sectarian religious outlook but also all one sided philosophical conceptions which try to shut up the ineffable in a restricting mental formula so these uh, you know philosophical conceptions vedanta creates philosophical conceptions of the divine and even that becomes a one sided approach because you know we are approaching through a process of the mind but we are shutting the heart so you will see in a typical for instance vipassana retreat which is drawn from you know vedanta and given this term that you have to uh, you know this heart its feeling for the divine all this is not something which which is encouraged you have to keep it aside now why because uh, it's through the mind that we are approaching to transcend the mind now in that case when we find the reality it is an impersonal reality it is not uh, you know the reality that shivinda is speaking about where the heart also finds its own beatitude and its uh, divine beloved where the will also discovers the will that has gone into the cosmos so uh, we have to be clear that the more integral the approach to the divine the better it is so this is what shivinda says that not only one sided religious outlook but also one sided philosophical conceptions so the question somebody asked mother sweet mother what does shurbindo mean by an integral idea of the divine mother sense everyone forms an idea of the divine for himself according to his personal taste his possibilities of understanding his mental preferences and even his desires people form the idea of the divine they want 
the divine they wish to meet and so naturally they limit their realization considerably so based on the starting point i will arrive at the end point this is the interesting part that even if i turn to mother now if i start with mother is somebody who is there to fulfill my desires so at the end of the journey if i am not destined to go further or if the aspiration doesn't widen itself i'll reach a point where mother will give me uh, you know whatever i need and i am very happy with it and i say it is mother's grace but i will not arrive at anything deeper and higher so here uh, mother makes it very clear that this limits the realization not that we cannot proceed we have to proceed with some idea some conception but as is the conception and the idea so will be the force of realization but if we can come to understand that the divine is all that we can conceive of and infinitely more we begin to progress towards integrality now here again we see that the difference is not that all that we conceive of is not divine look what mother is taking us to she says all that we can conceive of yes he is the giver of bones yes he is the uh, mother who protects us and guards us yes he is the eternal lover who loves us yes he is the one reality all these are conceptions he is also found in the vacant not vacant not is nothing but himself concealed from himself but you go further not that you demolish it but go further then we go towards integrality integrality is an extremely difficult thing for the human consciousness which begins to be conscious only by limiting itself but still with a little effort for those who know how to play with mental activities it is possible to widen oneself sufficiently to approach something integral you form an idea of the divine which suits your own nature and your own conception don't you so people from a religious background from a certain religion will form in a people from a vedantic background will form certain idea people from the background of tantras will form certain idea so if you want to get out of yourself a little and attempt to do a truly integral yoga you must try to understand that the divine is not only what you think or feel him to be but also what others think and feel him to be and in addition something that nobody can think and feel so this is how you know <laughs> that you know he is the inconceivable splendor that is how the mother puts it in prayers and meditation ineffable inconceivable that's why we have these terms to correct the mental error because the mind limits now okay in our mind we have a conception fine but we must know he is much more than that so then we are moving towards that infinity so if you understand this you have taken the first step on the path of integrality so the first step is now this is all in in with the background of vedanta that look i mean you have a certain conception of the divine so in a typical vedantic analysis we would not approach by uh, you know we would say okay what 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 do we feel the divine is so uh, of course i i don't wish to go that route but you know that would be like each one comes up with okay according to me the divine is a giver of this somebody would say divine is for me love somebody would say it is justice somebody would say it is truth and then you can go deeper and deeper that okay what do you mean by truth i'm just giving you this is a method which can be used that okay you mean truth so what is truth so then truth is supreme harmony also truth is not a one sided that this is truth and that is not truth so what is truth similarly divine is love 
So what is love? Is it human love? Then we see that no, with that love he can even destroy a whole army. <laughs> so we get liberated from our limited conceptions towards the true thing or divine is peace. So what really is that peace? Is it that, you know, is mental silence the not speaking or can the word and the silence go together? It is there in Shubindo's uh, beautiful uh, poems that how they go together. So when we talk about silence, uh, Shubindo wrote uh, 35 volumes in a state of complete mental silence and I'm sure he could have written 3500 more. So silence is not um, a non activity outwardly. It is an inner state in which we are seeped. Instinctively and without even being aware of it, people persist in wanting the divine to suit their own conception. So then we have to look inside. Am I really creating an image because it's convenient for me? The divine is this, divine is that, divine gives this, divine doesn't does that, divine doesn't do this. So these are all conceptions. For without thinking, quite spontaneously, they tell you, oh, this is divine, this is not divine. Now, this is very challenging because, you know, we are bound to um, uh, start with this that, no, certain things are divine, certain things are not divine. What do they know about it? And then there are those who have not yet set foot on the path, who come here and see things or people. Now, Mother is talking of the ashram context and tell you, this ashram has nothing to do with the divine. It is not at all divine. Because you see, everything which you feel is not divine. The, now, we don't challenge our own conception. And maybe, now this has very practical implication in life, that in life every time we see something or meet something which is different. So we have a tendency to somehow block it because it's um, it helps us to remain in a comfort zone. But to step out of the comfort zone and look at that, that look, I mean, uh, that is also another way that the divine is expressing himself. Now, divine is infinite, much beyond all these uh, limited expressions. But if you ask them, what is divine? They would be hard put to it to answer. They know nothing about it. And the less one knows, the more one judges. That's an absolute fact. And there comes a time when all one can do is observe. But to judge is impossible. One can see things, see them as they are, in their relations and in their place, with an awareness of the difference between the place they now are in and the one they might to occupy. Now this is important because uh, if everything is divine and even whatever doesn't exist is also divine, then it puts us in a very difficult situation. So what to do? So mother says in that case just observe and you have to see that everything is divine but you have to place it in the right context. So, you know, uh, I think in New Jersey we were talking about uh, uh, Rith. So that's where Rith comes in. That if you uh, say that, okay, this process is leading towards uh, the one reality, yes, it is leading towards one. Nobody can deny it. But what what reality is this and what, what is its place in the total vision of the reality or the truth? Is it uh, that's what is the beauty of Shurabindo, that when he experienced the inner silence and the nirvana, he went beyond. Because he felt there is something more. And what about that aspiration in the heart? This is a very good mm -hmm. thing that repeatedly in Savitri it comes. That even with the experience of the uh, unmanifest, unknowable, even there, 
Ashwapati is still carrying the flame of aspiration burning. He doesn't let that sink in front of that fire and that brings in uh, the results. One can see things, see them as they are, in their relations and in their place, with an awareness of the difference between the place they now are in and the one they ought to occupy. For this is the great disorder in the world. So it creates a lot of disorder. And that's what, you know, um, when we put something which should be here, here, uh, for instance, mind has its place in the yoga. But if we say that mind is supreme, then obviously we are making a great error. Or emotions, even of a superficial kind, may be a starting point of the journey. But if we think that's all that bhakti is about, then we are doing a great error. So things should be put in the right place. And there is a moment when one would be unable to say, this is divine and that is not divine. So look, Mother is leading us towards a different kind of integrality. One integrality or one approach is where we say, all these are constructs and we come out of that. Another is where we understand that everything is divine, but it is either divine in the making or divine in the passing. So that gives us the sense of the uh, march of the universe. Mm. So there was something which was uh, very divine in a certain point of time for a certain stage of evolution, our own evolution and the collective march, and this was valid. But there is something else which has to come now, and that, that is far more complete. For a time comes when one sees the whole universe in so total and comprehensive a way that, to tell the truth, it is impossible to take away anything from it without disturbing everything. So everything has its own place. And this is where Shobindo liberates us and yet keeps us beautifully engaged with the world. Because there is a kind of liberation from the world and ignorance where we are no more engaged with that field. But there is another approach where he keeps us engaged and that's where it, it draws from the path of the Gita. And one or two steps further yet, and one knows with certainty that what shocks us as a contradiction of the divine is quite simply something not in its proper place. So it's not something like an absolute evil, but it's not where it should be. There is a place for, you know, um, wrestling. But that place is in the ring. You can't, you know, <laughs> make a, a temple ground a wrestling place. So if you do that, then that creates evil. There is a place for everything. I, I mean, that's why in Tantra you have these three levels. Uh, there is a place of approaching that reality even as an animal. It is called as Pashubhav. Then there is a place of approaching that reality as a human being. Then there is a place for approaching that reality as a as a divine being, as a as a god. So you know each of them has its own. Each thing must be exactly in its place, and besides, it must be supple enough, plastic enough to admit into harmonious progressive organization all the new elements which are constantly added to the manifested universe. So first he says, so there are different approaches. Now one thing is that there are different approaches to the one reality and each is valid. Yes, but each has its place in the totality and we must know how to put each thing in its own place. And we must also know that reality is constantly revealing itself in a million ways. 
I mean, in a person who doesn't know anything about Vedanta, retreat, yoga, anything, it may be revealing itself in simply a simple hope and aspiration in the heart, maybe just mm. through a song which came in the 60s uh, during the revolt of the uh, hippie movement. And uh, Mother said something very interesting about it, that uh, barbarians of the new world. <laughs> because it carried within itself an aspiration for a beautiful world. So that itself becomes a very good, yeah. interesting starting point. So they didn't talk about yoga and uh, yet they talk about uh, the new world, the children of tomorrow. Uh, imagine that famous song, mm -hmm. the only one which uh, I, I enjoy <laughs> of <laughs> MJ, <laughs> not the dance, but just the song. Imagine a place, a world without boundaries. Now, what is it? It is a yoga without using that. Now, it's a new thing which has come in the manifested universe. So, if you take the traditional paths, you won't include it. No, this is not the way. Because there is no aspiration. This is a concept. This is not, you try to, you know, go inside. But here is yoga coming through another door, absolutely. Or as you were mentioning so beautifully, about a new music. There are people who are not knowing about yoga, but they want to bring a new music. They are simply wanting to create something new and beautiful. So, many new things are coming in the manifested universe. And we cannot cut them off. That, that has nothing to do with the divine and fix the divine into some traditional old paths which are, as Shubindu says, macadamized <laughs> and fully beaten tracks that this is the way you do it. No, there are many new things, dance forms, art forms, management forms. Uh, divine is going to express himself in countless ways in forms of healing. So she says, keep yourself open that divinity is entering through so many doors. Somebody asked Shubindu, uh, in super mind, what activities will not be there? So, Shivindo asked, cooking for instance? <laughs> he said, no, I didn't mean that way. He said, why not? Everything will be there. Even cooking in the supramental state. So, and if we really look at, um, uh, you know, Vedanta is derived from what we call today specialized path. It didn't exist like specialized path. It existed in a very, very different format. Now there is a tendency for specialized path. But um, uh, look at the story of Satyakam Jabali. So how was Satyakam given the teaching? So Satyakam was not given any method at all. Satyakam is a young, uh, you may not be knowing the story, so I'll just tell you the story. He's a youngster, you know, to show the, uh, what a bold and courageous effort it was and how much non-judgmental these people were. So he's a five, seven-year-old or ten-year-old kid who wants to understand Brahman about the ultimate reality. And the, the Guru says, look, everybody cannot be given this truth. So you go and find out, tell me who your parents are. So he has seen only his mother. So he asks his mother, mom, I know you are my mother, but who is my father? She says, I can tell you for sure I am your mother, but I don't know who your father is. Because I was with many men at the time you were conceived. Look at the, you know, the beauty of the story. And he goes and says this verbatim. And the Guru says, you have the adhikar because you are so straight, so direct. You have not hidden anything. <coughs> so what is the process the Guru gives him? You take hundred cows into the, uh, you know, into the forest. And when they become strong, thin and 400, uh, strong, well-built uh, and 400 in number, you come back. Yeah. So, <coughs> he goes, he trusts his master's words. And as he goes, 
he discovers because he has the aspiration to know brahman and he trusts his guru so everything begins to speak to him there is a whole dialogue on how agni reveals to him how winds reveal to him how the waters reveal to him and he comes back and he has realized brahman so the story of course has a follow up also when <coughs> this boy he grows up and he becomes a master satika he also has a disciple so he uses the same method on the disciple so everybody comes to his school and finishes graduation level and goes away so then uh, he tells this disciple that no you stay on so he says uh, have i not finished i have been here for so long i want to go to meet my parents and all no 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 you cannot go you have to stay here and he is not teaching him anything so his wife says satyakam's wife what are you doing you know poor fellow is suffering don't you see this state he is in a pathetic condition what a heartless person you are he says no no it's okay don't worry about it he is not going home <coughs> and he goes away satyakam himself goes away and says okay when i come back i'll see you no instruction so this man this boy thank thanks this boy quietly stays on he doesn't know what to do now he is thrown in a situation where on one side there is a seeking on the other side he has this okay my course is over what am i doing here i need to go back he has to struggle between the two quite naturally because of his love and obedience for his guru the seeking has the upper hand again in that story there is the fire which comes and speaks to him in fact there is a very beautiful conversation that uh, the two fires are talking to each other and says look how devoted he is we must give him that truth so through their conversation he gets the truth obviously it's about the inner fire the revelation comes inside because he has the aspiration so the key element is there that he has the aspiration and therefore the revelation comes so the universe is in a perpetual movement of inner reorganization and at the same time it is growing larger so to say becoming more and more complex more and more complete more and more integral and this indefinitely so she is teaching us a way where we embrace everything in the sense of the divinity which is a very very bold path we read those lines in savitri very very bold and white path you know it's almost like uh, shri krishna giving that mahavakya that you are full of fears full of all kinds of conceptions full of this is right this is wrong and instead sarva dharman parityajya mam ekam sharanam raja take refuge in me and go through the journey of life and as gradually new elements manifest the whole organization has to be remade on a new basis so that there is not a second when everything is not in perpetual movement but if the movement is in accordance with the divine order it is harmonious so perfectly harmonious that it is hardly perceptible it is difficult to see it which means again that every time new things will come and we have to use that experience as a catalyst for inner growth so this was another issue which was raised about inner and outer actually at every moment the two are coexisting 
there is a very nice story about it that um, you know the difference between a true master and so there was a great master known for his archery skills and uh, then one young young boy when he grows up he says i must be as good as the master and he practices and he can do everything that the great master can do so he challenges him to a duel he says look i mean i have mastered the art he says well, i agree you have mastered so nothing it, no 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 i want to prove that i am a greater master he says why you have to prove i take it that you are a greater master this <laughs> end of the story he says no 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 i have to prove it before everybody so at much insistence well the villagers come and the master says okay you try whatever you have to try so he shoots and asks the master can you do it master says fine so master also does it he doesn't know now what to do at least they are equal so master says okay now come let's you know since we have come so far let's make one last test so what is the test they go on to a ramshackle bridge which is over a Uh, river which is in spate with lot of crocodiles etc inside and you can hardly stand there he said let's shoot from here now the beauty of that is that you cannot shoot from there unless you have conquered your fear so he says that is the real crux of the matter because that mastery and the outer mastery go together if you have conquered your fear you are a better mass you know whatever externally you are doing you will be even better that's why in gita there is a very interesting phrase yoga karma sukoshnam so shurbindo uh, elaborates upon this that you know yoga is skill in works so uh, seen superficially it would mean well if i do my job well i am doing yoga lot of people take it like that and shurbindo says in that case somebody who is uh, a thief but a very skilled thief mm-hmm. so he is doing yoga And, and it will be right. So Shivendra says, "No, it is not in that sense. But when the inner being is quiet, then action spontaneously emerges and flows with a divine rhythm. That is kaushal in karma, because it's no more your action. It's no more you doing something, but it is the doer, the soul doer in the universe is doing." through the instrumentality which you ignorantly call as yourself this is a state towards which this can lead us completely and it's very beautifully described in one of shobindo's essays uh, the delight of works so how exactly we can we uh, we confuse the instrumentality to be me then we confuse the worker to be me then we have to go get rid of these two faces and we, then we discover that well there is only one who is working and uh, one simple practical uh, way that mother gives is is she says when you are doing a work be only with that moment completely open and in a state of aspiration do not think of something that is past because then you are carrying a baggage with you do not think of something that you are, you have to do it you know after in, a few days or tomorrow or after few hours because then you are again spending a lot of energy and she says both these things create fatigue because they take away a lot of energy but think only of what you are doing at the present moment do it as an offering opening yourself to the divine don't form preconceptions that what is going to come i mean especially you know say people ask that in this situation how one would act now that should be the describes in synthesis very beautifully that a divinely guided action does not take one single form it comes as an inspiration 
and you are impelled to act and it can take strange forms i'll give you one example of a uh, uh, playground ashram playground where um, somebody had come to demonstrate certain powers of the mind and you know it was arranged in the playground the mother also came for mother is all child stuff so you know like you see children play so she has come to see kids play yeah yeah so then you know um, suddenly this man started by saying jodi tumar atma bal prabal if your mind is very strong you can do this you can do that before he could demonstrate anything suddenly pranavda got up and said stop this nonsense and just walked out now imagine wow. a scenario where everybody sitting including mother yes gets up and says stop this nonsense and walks out mother got up and she also walked out and the whole thing collapsed so people didn't know so they asked mother he said yes he was right he foresaw what is going to happen and he was moved to at that point of time do something which was which was so outlandish we cannot even imagine that such an inspired action can take place and this action had the seal and stamp of the mother so you know we cannot say ki this was wrong action or this is a very human way of uh, you know doing it it's a crude mm-hmm. way of doing it so divinely inspired action when the consciousness is surrendered and quiet then action will emerge in us but if we are trying to mentally oh what shall i do what i should do in a given situation then we are interfering with the action of the divine within us so here is yeah tell that story about uh, the famous lawyer in the ashram who had the argument with prithvi singh no no i don't know this oh. particular or maybe or this is uh, very very much mm-hmm. very important because mother told something that was so extraordinary this lawyer had done tremendous work for mother in the ashram he was doing all kinds of things for her and one day he had an altercation with prithvi singh and prithvi singh said you are wrong he couldn't take it and he wrote to mother he said i'm leaving the ashram and all that good work that he had done he left the ashram and they went to mother and said mother couldn't you have done something you know to at least to uh, stop <laughs> to, to stop him from going to to you know to to be to be a little more gentle on him mother said yes i could have done it but it would not have been good for his progress so you see even in terms of action one can be so unconditioned it's not only in thought and conception but really you know i mean that again we see in the gita is arjuna's dilemma how in action i can be completely free of bondage because conditioning to the mind and bondage in the action is a very similar thing so she says and so the outlook changes and one has to say this is divine oh oh no so we were up up little but if the movement is in accordance with the divine order it is harmonious so this is one of the signs it will flow smoothly from inside not leave a baggage oh i should have i shouldn't have this uh, i could have done better differently no it just flows now if one comes down again from this consciousness to a more external consciousness naturally one begins to feel very precisely 
the things which help one to reach the true consciousness and those which bar the way or pull one back or even struggle against the progress. Now you see now mother is bringing out the another aspect that on one side we may talk about you know that divine reality is beyond all conceptions, beyond all systems, beyond all theories but then in that case how do we act? In a given situation how do we act? So she says, uh, she, she reveals, we have to see what things help us to progress and what things do not help us. And this is an individual study. For each one, one has to see within oneself. And so the outlook changes and one has to say, this is divine or this helps me toward the divine and that is against the divine, it is the enemy of the divine. So for each one of us, we have to figure out whether this particular thing has now become a bar or it is helping me. So there is no universal bar and universal, you know, mm. for each one. And that also, it's not a one point, but it keeps moving. You you feel this is a bar, you drop it, but you pick up another bar. It's a scaffolding. But you have to go through that process. You cannot, uh, you know, uh, simply say, okay, now I have dropped the bars and you will be lost because one may end up doing worst kind of things under that pretext. But this is a pragmatic point of view for action, for the movement in material life. Because one has not yet reached the consciousness which goes beyond all that, because one has not yet attained that inner perfection, having which one has no longer to struggle. <clears throat> for one has gone beyond the zone of struggle or the time of struggle or the utility of struggle. But before that, before attaining that state in one's consciousness and action, Necessarily there is struggle, and if there is struggle, there is choice, and for the choice, discernment is necessary. So, you know, she puts everything in a beautiful perspective. This is called Rith. That look, there is a stage, don't feign that you are there. This stage, this is important. There is another stage when something else comes. But what is common in all this is that aspiration. That's why aspiration is so important. As is the aspiration, so will the path open. In fact, path opens through aspiration. And then she adds something very beautiful as, you know, to make it so complete. And the surest means to discernment is a conscious and willing surrender. So, one approach is, you know, this is a problem with Gyan Yoga. That we start with this premise that the self that we seek is actually within us. And we are that self. Now, it's true. It's, it's, it's true at, at an experiential level. But the problem with that is it can lead to many, many kinds of stupidities. There were people who would write to Sri Aurobindo. Uh, right now, no, to mother, there is a very nice, a very interesting poem somebody wrote uh, for the mother. Right now I sit at thy feet but tomorrow I shall sit by thy side on thy throne. So the person thought one has written a great Vedantic poem. <laughs> and Shurabindu gave a very interesting, I have forgotten, it's there in Nagin Doshi's correspondence that you are going off your handle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but people believed. See, this, this can lead to, you know, Aham Brahmasmi, Ravana interpreted like that. Soham Asmi. These are great truths. 
but great truths in unchaste minds lead to great errors <laughs> so one such error is there is none to surrender because it's me it's me it's within me within me yeah. surrender to whom surrender to whom i don't surrender to myself now it can lead to a, a kind of a maze you know because we don't know that in this journey where we miss out which vedanta doesn't talk about in tantra talks that's why tantra is so important to complement vedanta vedanta strangely in the ancient vedas it is there but then what upanishads did you know to little bit reconnect with you know new jersey upanishads took away lot of things which were in the vedas and just gave the essential part that's why you know all these methods talk about vedanta because it's so nice you know vedanta will not talk about play of forces vedanta will not say indra you are obstructing my journey and now you are letting me go it will not talk about valas pani vritra it will not talk about that at all it's a just gives a formula a very liberating truth that you know all this is for the habitation of the lord which is wonderful but upanishads are already presuming that a person is standing on a uh, great pedestal and shobindo says that that upanishadic verses already take it that the human mind is ready for this kind of a truth but the real journey as it unfolds in the veda that there are forces which can put you in a spin that's why tantra comes in there are forces which will use every concept to give a spin you know it's a interesting so you say that divine is beyond everything it will give a spin to that and at one point shobindova says can uh, asked can these forces uh, mimic create or imitate for you the experience of sachidananda he said yes because we don't know what is sachidananda so this even in fact he says don't seek after experiences immediately they will create when mother was asked about kundalini so this even this seeking about experience is a ego it's not surrender i want to see what what is that experience of the one and when i put that kind of effort my mind will formulate an experience which will be ready made according to it will pick up from within me pick up from all the books that i have claimed that i have forgotten and dropped but they are there in the subconscious nature so it pick up from there and create for me an experience and there were so many people who were misled by that and how much mother and shobindo would remind them there were people who saw krishna people who had seemingly the experience and people who had kundalini and they would come and ask and how they would correct that how the mind formulates based on uh, what it has read created so what is the safety then the safety lies in surrender so which means the divine is not just a state of consciousness but a being of course that logically also it applies that if there is a perfect consciousness by the very fact it is a perfect consciousness it is a perfect being because <laughs> it is absolutely conscious so how can perfect consciousness not be conscious of itself so it knows itself it knows itself as the one being so that is how this whole thing now when there is one being why do you want to take a long way why not start also with surrender because it's not only you who are seeking an impersonal reality but a reality which is deeply engaged with you so that's why the talk of surrender right at the very beginning in fact the mother's in uh, this is a very sweet little bengali letter of shurbindo surrender is the beginning of the path surrender takes you through the path and surrender is the end of the path <laughs> now what do you talk about that like because that she will do we may have conceptions which are very small narrow ignorant 
But that saving grace, that touch of grace upon our life, that love which is in the heart of the universe, that will take care of it. That's why look at mother, at the end of all this, what does she say? And the surest means to discernment is a conscious and willing surrender as complete as possible to the divine will and guidance. Then there is no risk of making a mistake and of taking false lights for true ones. So we'll, we can... Uh, now we can have some, you know, more questions. I thought, you know, we'll take it like this. Maybe read some passage, just to, you know, have a different format. No problem. Have break now because the other guys will finish in two, three minutes. Three thirty, I think. Yeah, but still, if there is something quick, yeah, yeah. Can you say if some because they are going to break off and come here, so yeah, we can yeah. just continue yeah, yeah. our team. I'm just saying that yeah, planning yeah. wise, ah, we should plan to yeah. anticipate. Yeah. Yes. Can, you, can you say a few words about the usage of the word Vedanta in Shravindo's language and what it has come to mean today? Right. So basically, so you he's classified as neo-Vedantic. Yeah. So to start with, there is the Veda. So Vedas are, Veda literally means knowledge, secret knowledge. So basically, it is a knowledge in a specialized sense, not a knowledge which you can get through the senses or through the mind's normal, rational, analytical, cognitive processes. This is what originally it meant. Now, how did the Vedic Vedas arrive at that knowledge? Because, you know, best is to go back to that. The Vedic Rishis arrived at it through aspiration, incidentally. Because the first thing they spoke about is the fire. Mm. So, they didn't arrive through discernment or, you know, mental questioning. They arrived at it through fire and sacrifice. So, first light the fire of aspiration and you sacrifice in it everything that is not yet arrived at its fullness. And why? Not to demolish it, but to perfect it, to illuminate, to make it purer. So, this sacrifice was not for destruction. What will be destroyed is only something which is uh, worth destroying. But all else will be ennobled and perfected. So, supposing I have a conception of the divine, I have this aspiration. So, the way of the Vedas was, I want to know you, I want to understand you. It's there in Mother's prayers. O thou whom I cannot understand, whom I cannot know. I want to commune with you. But I do not know how. I have not read any book. I just carry this aspiration in my heart. And I have these concepts in my mind which I can't get rid of. My mind is a chatter box. So when I offer it inwardly to the Divine, then slowly she will take out all that is beautiful in it and start ennobling it and remove all that is... Now, this cannot be done in a day, two days, ten days. It's a, you know, a persistent process. So this is the original path of the Vedas in which there are forces that obstruct, forces that help. So it's a journey. The Vedic Rishis were warriors. They had to battle against a whole array of inner enemies. So we cannot do it only by mental inquiry because there is, there is lust, anger, greed, all this is an interference. So it's not only the mind which interferes, it is also the vital which interferes. To quietening the mind is one thing, quietening the vital is a far more difficult thing. Then there is the physical which interferes. So, I mean, 
uh, I'm just uh, restraining my temptation to go all into, uh, you know, how to get into vital quietude and physical. We'll talk about it later. But this is the Vedas. Now, when Vedas spoke about this sacrifice and the cows and everything, uh, you know, and why they wanted plenitude. The rishis were not seeker of a reality which is denuded from this universe. They wanted to engage in action. So, light, plenitude of light, ashwa, force, plenitude of force. So their silence uh, was, or that reality was not meant to cut them off from things, but for a more forceful action. So that's why yesterday at night, you know, I said it's a strategic retreat. Mm. Not a retreat for simply, you know, getting into an inner state, but a retreat which helps us to advance further. Then, because the Vedic knowledge over a period of time, as happens to all knowledge, it gets, got eclipsed, went into uh, Vedvad or ritualism. Therefore, Upanishads broke off that all the shell in which people had trapped Vedic knowledge, external rituals, external methods, and it brought out the central truths that, look, these are the central truths. Focus on this. Don't forget these. If you forget this, then you are not on the path. You may be doing sacrifice outwardly. But if your central liberating truth you have not kept in mind, then you are straying away. So they gave these central truths so that people know uh, can orient. They were like orientation. So it's called Vedanta. I mean, this is the ultimate truth which you find. And for each uh, Upanishad, there was a path that the sage followed. Let's take in Yagnavalk, in Ish Upanishad. It's a, you know, it's a beautiful path. So it starts by saying that, okay, you live with this idea and this Sriobindu speaks about. And we will read this meditation after the tea. He says, you start with this idea that all is in the divine, the divine is in all, and all is the divine. And let this idea go into your head. Hammer it. When you look at a tree, think there is divine inside. When you look at uh, contrary appearances, the storm, the hurricane, you push your aspiration that there is divine hidden behind this hurricane. I am not able to see it. When you look at a gory scene, there is divine behind it. When you, you know, look at people whom you are not very comfortable with, think that there is divine inside him also. Now, this aspiration, if it continues throughout the day, and this is something we can practice actually, maybe, you know, uh, today for some time or tomorrow sometime, that we spend uh, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever we encounter, we try to look at the divine within it, not that this is divine, like I take tea and say this is divine, that... The Gita says, don't confuse that. But its essence deep inside is the divine. And then it has a very powerful effect. The mother says the story of Sri Ramakrishna, which I have not heard anywhere except uh, the mother speaking of this. And she says when he was bit by a cobra, he looked at it and said, What? Mother? Why have you come this way? And nothing happened. Now that is a state of consciousness where you have that power. Because you are practicing the divine in everything that it has a influence upon you and this is really a practice which everybody can engage into so vedanta spoke about these so it starts like that isha vashya midam sarvam now what was the method meditate upon these truths what was the path of vedanta this analysis and discernment came much later vedanta doesn't use this except that for instance kena upanishad which shrivindo says is for the um, unripe soul so he says that there are two paths, one for the unripe, second for the more mature soul. 
So Ken Upanishad is for the unripe soul and that he described beautifully in the synthesis of yoga. So to the unripe soul you have to remind this is not divine, that is divine, what we read just now. So Ken Upanishad starts by saying Yan mansana manute yenahur manomatan tadeva brahmantvam viddhi nidam yadvidam pasate that that which cannot be known by the mind, mark the words, by no mental process, but that by which the mind is known. So what do you do in that path? Every time mental thoughts, questioning, etc. come, you put them aside and focus on the eternal. You don't get engaged in that query at all. You keep on. He says that's for the unripe soul. Then when you have uh, next step, okay, you are able to disengage from the surface reality and are able to connect with something deeper. Now, what about this surface reality? What do we do with it? Then he says, Isha Upanishad is for the postgraduate level. So there, there he says that Isha Vasyam idam sarvam yat kincha jagat yam jagat. Everything is his habitation. Everything is his habitat. And therefore what you should do? Tena tektena bhunjitha. Enjoy this universe as the divine enjoys by renouncing. What renouncing? That false vision. That wrong erroneous vision of the ego. Which means we have to keep working upon the egoistic vision which... Uh, already determines it should be like this. Now this is an egoistic vision. When things are not the way I want, I feel sad and you know distressed. But the Vedantic way would be, go behind, try to look for the divine who is within it. Because he is everywhere. And then you will enter into a state of joy. So it says, Ten Tektin Bhunjita Magrida Kasasvidhanam. So this is a very beautiful one after another. And we can talk, take one of the Upanishads as just a sample. Uh, maybe the next session where we take that as a sample and one of the meditations that Shirdinda has given. So this was the path of the Upanishad, very bold path or Kathopanishad which is a method of uh, not inquiry again aspiration. In Kathopanishad, Nachiketa aspires. Tell me, he is seeking and he is clear about his seeking. <laughs> and very interestingly Shirdinda says it's a threefold seeking. The first question of Nachiketa, seeking of Nachiketa is I want my father to be peaceful and quiet. Look how beautiful, interesting it is. It is something very worldly, something very external. Yama says, fine, granted. Now, anything else? He says, I have one more seeking. Now, you see, this is not negated, but you build upon it. Same with boons of Savitri. Savitri asks for material boons first. <laughs> and she is granted, but she doesn't stop there. This is where the difference comes. That I may stop here or I may go forward. So Nachiketa goes further. So he has already taken care of his individual life. Then he goes to the next level. He says, tell me that, uh, you know, uh, all this universe they talk about, they talk about immortality and eternity. Is there anything immortal and eternal behind this ever-changing universe? I see only change. So then Nachiketa says, yes, there is. He says, okay, there is something like that. But uh, how do I find it? So he says, well, the process is uh, Shreyascha, Preyascha. You make a choice, what we read in Mother, Mother just now. You have to discern, make a choice. Do you want the temporal or do you want the eternal? Same thing like Kenopnishad. You want this or you want the eternal. Then a time comes when we persist in this activity. Then slowly the sense of the eternal will begin to emerge inside us. He says, now you are satisfied? He says, no, no, no. Because he has to go to the next level. This is about the cosmic presence of the divine behind the temporal things. So there the third status is transcendental. 
He says, some say that after death, the person exists and some say he does not. So, what is your view about it? So, Yama wants to avoid this question <laughs> because this will give away his own secret. Yeah. Because cosmic management, death is a place. But transcendent is, you know, he stops there. But he knows the secret. He has the key. So he said, no, no, don't ask me this question. I'll give you this, that. But he has already known that what he wants. He said, no, I don't want you. You give me that if you know it. So he said, no, even the gods don't know it. Again, he is telling that, you know, it's a secret which only human beings can uh, ask for because they have a psychic being. Gods don't know it. They are not evolutionary. They know only that they are fixed to their plane. But what is beyond them, they don't know. That's what the story of Shiva and uh, uh, Brahma Vishnu goes, that, you know, find out where is the end. They can't find the end. So then the next level is that he says, okay, since you are asking me, I'll tell you. What is the method, he says? Look into your heart there at the center. Angust Matra Purusha, that is where you will find this secret, you are seeking it. At the heart there is Aditi, she is the fair mother, turn towards her, this is what thou seekest. Look inside, there is the swan, he gives number of images to meditate upon. And this is what thou seekest and at the end he demolishes all these concepts. He says, well you talk about what divine is, what he is not, how can I tell you that? Na tatra suryo bhati na chandra tarakam. Nema Vidyato Bhanti Kuto Yamagni. How can I tell you about that before whom the sun is a dark blot and all the stars they appear like darkness in front of that? And then he says that, you know, when he eats food on his supper table, <laughs> sages and heroes are meat, and I death am a spice in the banquet. So it's like basically to blow off all mental conceptions. <laughs> what that being is and that movement stops there. So this is a path again. You know, as you said, Vedantic path. This is original Vedanta. This is hard to practice. So people try to make it uh, vichara, viveka, you know, this kind of analysis. In fact, Shubhindu was asked this question. He says, what is vichar, viveka, vimarsha got to do with, uh, vivechana got to do with uh, yoga? It will just keep you... Ramakrishna had a very interesting way to put it. He was more direct. So Ramakrishna says, you know, if there is water, how much ever you stir it, you won't get ghee out of it. <laughs> you may stir your mind with all kinds of things, you won't get ghee out of it. But if there is milk, there will be ghee. So he says, first have love for the divine. Of course, his path, I think somebody asked also in the morning. But then what happens, it begins to change. Mother has said, love is like a leaven, which when you add to the bread, it makes a dough, add to the dough, it makes it, you know, like a bread. So when you, with love or with an aspiration for light, when the mind begins to get illumined, that is the stage when you can, you know, go further and you can look at this universe, discern rightly and then something beautiful will emerge out of it. So this is the whole path and such lovely grace. So this was Vedanta. But mind you, it is not complete. Because it leaves, because, because uh, Upanishads left a whole side of experience of the Vedas. As I said, the forces that help and hinder. Somebody had to take it up. So, Tantra came. 
Tantra talks about this. All the gods, goddesses, asuras and all the beings. Because that whole side of Vedas is not mentioned. That's why when Tantra came, the traditional Vedantins said, they fought. This is not, uh, you know, this has nothing to do with the Veda. Original authorities are the Vedas. This is something which is a disturbance. Like, you know, you use the word Neo-Vedanta. So they said, this is your own creation. Then later on, there is a whole uh, stories about it that finally it has been accepted. They are also Agama. Agama means they are scriptures which are derived from the Vedas. They are not a human conception. Now, what Shurabindu does is, he takes both Vedanta and Tantra to its utmost possible union. In Vedanta, there is no place for Shakti. That's why in Vedanta, there is no talk of surrender. There is no Shakti to surrender. There is no mother, so to say. There is only Prakriti, mind you. And that's why Gita comes as a corrective. Because what does Arjuna say? This is my Prakriti. And I must get rid because it will bind me. What does Krishna say? No, this is one Prakriti. But there is another Prakriti, the Para Prakriti. That has become the Jiva. And that Para Prakriti resides in the Jiva as Swabhava and Sudharma. So when you act according to Swabhava and Sudharma, you are perfectly fine. It's a very simple clue it gives. Para Prakriti Jiva Bhuta. From that comes Swabhava and Sudharma. So this is another approach. So Gita tries a little bit to synthesize but not to its utmost because Gita primarily is still a Vedantic scripture and it doesn't, uh, you know, there is nothing like transformation of the instruments, all that is not there. So, Shurabindo takes this to the next logical culmination. Okay, in Vedanta, mind is illumined, nothing more than that. If you really follow it in the strictest sense. In Tantras and the Puranas, the vital is illumined, all the forces you understand. And by mastering those forces, you clear the vital of many obstructions. The Vala and the Vritras reside here, they fill us with greed, lust, uh, anger, all these. So you clear these obstructions by the action of the gods. But what about the physical? So he goes to the next level. Shabindo brings in that added dimension to start with. Then he unites the conception of the Shakti and the Ishwara. And yet, for practical purposes, Shurabindo's yoga leans on Shakti. This we cannot forget. Because he constantly speaks about turning to the mother, opening to the mother. It is the key process of this yoga. If there is a key process. See, they use the name. He is simply interpreted. See, Vedanta is not Sankracharya. Vedanta is simply Upanishads. If you want a definition for it. Upanishads are called Vedanta. This is Yeah. We know, we, I mean, a little bit we know is Vedanta is Upanishad. Yeah. But what they seem to understand and read is so different. No, that's what. So, now what they do is, now what Vedanta is the Upanishads. Now, how do they understand the Upanishads? So, they redefine it as Vedanta. So, that's where the problem lies. So, every school is having its own Vedantic understanding. Mm. But it's actually an interpretation of the Upanishads which they call as Vedanta. And Basically, these Upanishads cannot be interpreted without the exp- corresponding experience. Otherwise, some of these experiences can be very, very, like Shankaracharya had a great difficulty in interpreting the Ishupanishad. Because Ishupanishad goes to that level where everything is divine. And Shubindu speaks of it. In Ishupanishad, you will see footnotes where he says where Shankaracharya, you know, could uh, had a problem 
and of course he doesn't elaborate much on that because he had already a conception in his mind of the divine and for his life and that's where you know why you should free yourself from the conceptions this conception of shankaracharya came up because it was simply a reaction to buddhism she again when you look at shankaracharya's uh, background his aspiration was not uh, to seek either transformation or a great uh, uh, wide catholic truth basically buddhism had broken down all the formal practices of uh, vedic period and declared and and buddha did not say buddha spoke of the permanent but later post buddhist they became like you know the modern deconstruction paradigm that there is nothing there is nothing divine there is simply a bundle of sanskaras there is no one reality it is nothingness shunyam now buddha didn't mean it in this sense and when he used the word anatma it is not in this sense that he has used buddha never wanted to define it that is a different thing altogether so shankaracharya is a reaction because he was born in a certain context shankaracharya is a reaction no the vedas are higher because buddha did khandan of the vedas krishna also did but nobody had the courage or guts to you know point a finger at krishna do people do that krishna also did that he says what, what are vedvadins all your uh, you know when you know the truth the significance or importance of the, all these vedas is uh, like you know a glass of water when you are surrounded by the ocean so he also did the same thing but buddha did it with great power but shri krishna brought out many truths of the vedas like sacrifice the whole chapter on sacrifice ascent of the sacrifice all this is from the vedas some of the verses are straight from the rigveda some of the verses are from the upanishad so that's why people don't but buddha is totally different he even used a different language so shankaracharya's uh, search if one may say so was a revolt against the whole vedic conception where he denied he thought he denied the one reality but shurbindo says something very interesting but he ended up confirming buddhism in his own way because he said there is one reality behind and he negated everything as illusion and that alone is real so this was shankara now naturally see it's a very comfortable concept like all this is simply a bundle of sanskaras it is a movement don't engage yourself with it this practice uh, is easier to handle because you don't have to be uh, conscious of everything that is happening um, there is no issue about action simply discard it now to discard it they went through a two stage process engage only in those actions which are endorsed by the shastra that's how shankaracharya went so what are those actions yagna religious activities so those actions are spiritual and eventually you discard them also and find that one reality but shurvindu says no he says whole range of human activities and the gita also says yukta har viharasya so shankaracharya's vedanta is a very limited understanding of the upanishads that's how we should put it but naturally not to the shankarites they don't understand but just to put it <laughs> no 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 but there is a way to negotiate it you know i have this answer because i have met many of these people and sometimes engaged in lot of discussions so when a shankarite starts debating and challenging so i said look all this is maya illusion shubhendu has this aphorism god laughed thrice at shankara you have read it yes uh, 
first when he interpreted the Isha Upanishad. <laughs> Could have done it. Then when he went around the four corners of the world, claiming that the world is unreal. <laughs> I mean, what are you really then? So this is the whole process. So Shankara's Vedanta is one understanding of Vedanta. So maybe after the break when we meet, whenever, we'll talk about one of the meditations that Shurabindu gives from the Ishupanishad. And maybe we'll meditate. Let's see.